Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Cast of Cough, where we talk all things related to the Dark Tower series by Stephen King. I'm your, I am your, I'm your co-host. <laughs> <laughs> I'm your co-host Rachel, and joining me is the other half of my quartet, the one, the only, the DJ. A uh, slightly less twang question version of myself uh, wandering in. Um, I did have a high alcohol content beer yes. before we started this podcast. DJ so. was overserved tonight. Do you remember what the beer was for those at uh, home? I believe it was called the Rocktober. Oh, which, was it like a pumpkin beer? It was not. It was like a, a brown. Oh. Um, but I'm surprised that like October themed things are coming out in early September. Um, I, I guess if we don't have anything to celebrate for Halloween, then mm. like, it might as well start early and often. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, I, this is my favorite time of year for beer. This is, and I do enjoy a pumpkin beer, but it's more that this is when all the stouts come out, and I am like mm. a full stout drinker. I mean, I will drink like a lager, I guess, and I'll drink the occasional sour, but I'm not an IPA person, and I feel like ipas have kind of taken over the tap i feel oppressed by big ipa <laughs> <laughs> i feel like i cannot get a decent beer when i go out half the time but this time of year this is when stouts are ascendant and it's just like wall to wall bourbon barrel aged pumpkin spot it just it, this, is, <laughs> this is my time of year this is when i shine <laughs> uh, yeah I, so i don't um and i don't know what your move is but my move is basically to roll in and tell the bartender to pick whatever their favorite beer is oh that is a good and, because, like, i feel like somebody's gonna give me hazy and i'm gonna be bummed well every once in a while it goes south but like a lot of the um uh, like twirly mustache dudes yeah and like more tattoos on their right arm than their left arm gals yeah like we'll yes. be like oh you've presented me with a challenge and they like <laughs> go through each one and like they taste them themselves and then they like think about it and they mouth swoosh and they spit and don't drink and then they're like oh I think this is the one for you. And like, it's like, <laughs> that's great because like you have 15 to 20 beers to choose from. And it's not like, I know what's good. Right. And if I point my dumb finger at the board, like my odds of getting, you know, bingo or, are slim to none. Yeah. But you as the person who works behind the counter and like, claims yourself as an aficionado will at yeah. least aim me in the direction of like whatever you believe is possibly the best thing nice uh, yeah anyway so i guess that will explain half of what's going on tonight me on the other hand i'm just like kind of brain dead today so together we're <laughs> hopefully we will form one brain together <laughs> i mean it's supposed to be wizard and glass but mostly we've just discussed glass Glass, oh, yeah, glass of beer, exactly. Uh, you're making me want a beer so bad right now. Oh man, as soon as we're done, I'm walking down to the 7-Eleven and getting myself a peach beer. All right, so plan for this episode. We're going to kick the show off with our in-depth conversation of Wizard and Glass Part 2, Susan. Finally, we meet Susan Delgado. Uh -huh. Chapter 1, Beneath the Kissing Moon, and Chapter 2, Proving Honesty, which... Tim on the Facebook group was like, ooh, this one's rough. He did uh, not lie. More, more like <laughs> penetrating things all the time. Ooh, it's a bummer. Okay, but we'll get into that. And then we'll close out the show with some fun listener feedback from the Facebook group. All right, but before we do all that stuff, DJ, can you please remind our listeners and let any new listeners know what our spoiler policy is around these parts? 
So as we sing our song, uh, galloping towards our final conclusion of this chapter, we will let you know if that path crosses anything that might possibly spoil future books for you in advance and give you the opportunity to duck behind a window and look at a rosy light. <laughs> I didn't know you were going with this. But it really, like, I just had to stay with stay the course because, like, when we got there, I was like, Yes, it's all come together. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. When, um, when I got silence, I'm like, oh, man, did I mess that up somehow? Like, I no, no, know. no. I just I had to let it breathe for a second. Really just let it fully absorb. And then I was like, yes, it works. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> all right, cool. So we didn't get any iTunes reviews this week. So for those of you at home, if you enjoy the show, please leave us a review on iTunes and we'll read it on here. But that just means we can get straight into our review. Now, DJ, where did we last leave off with our uh, So our gang had just gone into story mode and young Roland had met his dad and uh, gotten tossed out of bed naked and, and uh, possibly given a task to complete. Mm-hmm. And we cut from those guys to a different perspective on that particular time and those mm-hmm. gentlemen also traveling at the same time as we will eventually allude to here. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and so uh, now we are with Susan, who about the same time is... Mm-hmm. Rhea. We start with Rhea. Or, oh, yeah, I'm sorry. I've got... No worries. Like, Dang it. <laughs> Dang it. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so, so we come to this uh, elderly lady's house, Uh, And I sort of got the description and like the picture in my mind of almost, I remember in Princess Bride when they go to the, the guy that's like, he's almost dead. Magic Max. Magical Max. Yeah, exactly. Like I almost like visualize her house as, as looking like that with like junk all over the place, Uh kind of gross, Uh a little shifty and like dirt floors. Yeah. Yep. Like dirty floors and like kind of gross stuff all over the place. And this cat that has, like, extra arms, Mm -hmm. like a forked tail, and, like, I I don't know if I'm just imagining this, but I I feel like it, at least some of its body parts probably are of the furless variety, like those gross cats that you see on... I mean, (laughs) I know they're super sweet, and they're not any worse than any other cat, but, like, from a naked mole rat perspective, you're like, ooh. Yeah. And so this cat is, like, wandering around. And, like, Stephen King kind of paints her as this, like, really stinky older lady. Yes. And, and like, okay, so uh, backing up first. So um, basically we find her in the house, and these men have just dropped off some kind of, like, trinket in a box that she's not supposed to mess with, that she's supposed to hide in her secret place and they don't want to know what her secret place is. And like that almost <laughs> speaks to the nature of Rhea herself. And yeah. they're just all like shocked and like, don't want to know anything more about her. Don't want her to overshare. Just need to yeah. like, hand her this thing. She needs to hide it. And that's it. And so she hides it in her secret place. And we find out that she's basically an actual real witch. Like she puts her hand down on the ground where she's hidden this thing. And she's able to sort of like make um, the symbols move around and like a a thing to open out of the floor. And then she uses her powers to open up this box that the thing is in. And the thing that's in there 
is this glowing orb. And she's like, she's hungry for this thing. Yeah. She she wants to look at it. She is drawn into it. On the front of the boxes, there's this like sort of warning that says it will see her. Yeah. Whoever and, opens this, I'll see whoever opens this or something. Exactly. Like that. Yeah. And so she looks into it and lo and behold, she sees uh some horsemen that look very similar to gunslingers rolling up onto town. Mm-hmm. And she pulls it up closer to her face. And like a- asks it to shore closer, and and Stephen King gets really graphic here. Um, she starts to feel her womanly uh, bits more than she has in years, she and gets like the tingles. Yeah, exactly. It gets like uh, gets almost like juicy for the box. Wow, and- macaroni in a pot. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't res- couldn't resist that, could you? No, oh, I man. couldn't. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. And, and so she's like kind of bent over looking at this and um she she sort of like uh realizes that her appointment that she because she stacked two appointments together she had the people dropping off this box that she's not supposed to actually be looking with but she's already opened up and sort of messed with and then after that she was supposed to have susan show up and do her proving which is another story altogether but the thing is, is she thought she had time and Susan's a little early. So the cat is kind of going wild around her legs while she's looking into this and zooming in. And she notes that there is like a dead skull on one of the uh, um, possibly gunslinger uh, saddles. And these guys look a little younger, but they have the swagger of a gunslinger. Yeah. And I, I don't think it's any um, hard to piece together illusion that that this is Roland and the gang right, right, Roland right. into town, right? Yeah. I'm not spoiling anything. I don't, I don't think so. I mean, especially it, when she like zooms in on the one and she's like, I think he's from Gilead. Hint, hint, nudge, nudge. Like, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I think you're fine. Like if you if you didn't get that one, I'm I am very sorry. So much for um, that spoiler warning. <laughs> yeah, I know. Right? <laughs> uh, dang. But no, uh, so fine. she's like she's looking at that. The cat's going wild and like. Uh, Rhea's almost sort of jealous that the cat is paying yeah. interest in this. Like, it's almost like, um, remember in the Tommy Knockers? And I, I know I always go back to that movie, but like, <laughs> drink. <laughs> yep, exactly. But like, when they like look into the glowing green and it like sort of sucks them in yeah. and they get jealous of it almost, yeah. you feel the same feeling here. Yeah. And this like pink light that she's looking to into this crystal is almost like making her drunk with its power. Right. And like almost drinking her at the same time. And the description of her nether regions and the rest of her at the same time almost makes it feel like for a moment she the the thing that's feeding her as she's looking into it makes her feel young and youthful again. Yes. In like a strange like um, almost like looking in the mirror until the mirror kills you sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so the cat's running around. She's like, kicks it, tells it to go away a couple times, and then like realizes that the cat's actually attempting to warn her that someone is approaching the house. And so she quickly and sort of nervously stashes the thing and then um, runs really fast mm-hmm. <laughs> with like this like extra armed cat. And darts mm-hmm. back inside and, like, doesn't quite get the thing hidden and, and, and so on. And, and it's just – it's it's interesting because 
first you're painted this picture of like an elderly lady who mm-hmm. is kind of like feeble and and decrepit and then you get this almost like running elderly lady sprinting with like almost it's our first glimpse of she's speed. not what she looks like kind of thing exactly mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so i've kind of rolled fast through this bit this but... is actually a perfect place to pause Okay, I, yeah, that's what I was thinking. Is like you've probably got some input too. Oh, and I've, covered I've a got lot of stuff. a lot of stuff to say about this section. Because <laughs> here's the thing: is I actually think this section is some of the most efficient storytelling I've ever read. Like there, there is so much set up with so little said in this section that I am mm-hmm. seriously impressed by it. In just these first two sections, King. He does, like, substantial world building. He introduces characters. We get a lot of characterization. We get a very clear sense of what is happening both on the surface in this area and behind the scenes of this town without it feeling like this huge info dump. He basically sets this in media res, right? He doesn't spend a big, long time setting up with a preamble about, you know, the history of this town and introducing its players Instead, we just get this mix of common well, tropes. It's almost more like when, whenever she's like thinking about something, she insults somebody, but the insult like also provides you with the information you exactly. need at the same time. So, like when she's thinking about the box and like the people that dropped it off, she like makes a, a kind of like internal joke about the big coffin hunters. Yes, and then she's like, "Those men so proud of their pricks and blah blah blah," and like yeah. goes on, and then like basically gives you the ages and ranges of the folks and like which ones are the more cunning and which ones are the less cunning. Yeah, like gives you a little bit of insight into the mayor and like his relationship with his wife and like what her next appointment is going to be, and, and yeah, also like kind of almost like cements herself in this area as like the medicine woman of some sort where people from like six counties around come to her and know her symbol. Mm -hmm. And this proofing thing is something that she does on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. Uh, She's feared by all of them, but she's also sort of sworn fealty to the, the town's Mm -hmm. political uh, master, I guess would be probably an okay term to use. I mean, he's the mayor. Yeah. Mm hmm. Yeah, and, like, then you also get, like, a slight glimpse into the Coffin Hunters and the relationship to the mayor as a whole. And then and even... then also his relationship to Farson. Yep, Which exactly. is, like, another layer of that. And we have already heard little bits and pieces about that because we know from the Gilead perspective. And that's what I'm saying. It's, like, we're finding out who she is at the same time as we're finding everybody else out. In mm-hmm. addition to finding out data, you know, like, these are the people and this is how they relate to each other. It's all sandwiched with characterization about Rhea. So at the same time we're learning about them, we're learning a ton about her as well and who she is in a deeper way because of the way that she talks about these people. It's, like, very revealing of herself. (laughs) I mean, even just, like, the introduction of her, it starts off and you get these very scant little details about how she lives on this hill and it's 10 degrees cooler up there. It feels like winter up there even when it's summer down below, right? And so... Right away, we know, like you said, like she's sort of the town witch. She's someone who's on the outskirts. She's basically born in her own land kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. And there, there's something also very unnatural about her, right? Why is it where she's colder? I mean, obviously, there's geographical reasons, but also it kind of paints this character portrait of her being very much outside 
it matches with this hatred and bitterness that we see with her along with the canniness you know she's in that combination makes her extremely dangerous and potentially a formidable villain in this and you see it with her running back to the cabin you see the way that she is constantly politicking and every decision she's making is based around some outcome that she is working towards. So we learn all of that in very quick succession in these very short brief chapters. I feel like you get a like you get a bead on her. You know exactly who mm-hmm. Rhea is. You don't necessarily know what she's going to do, but you know who she is and you know what her motivation is. I and it's also like little details that really drive it home like she she can hear the thinny from where she lives and she likes <laughs> and the she, sound like, enjoys of it. it. Yes, I mean those little tiny details because we know that our characters that we know and love all are ha- like sickened on like a visceral level by the sound of this thinny, but to her it sounds good, it sounds sweet. You know, that that well, tells it, you a ton about who Rhea is. So like when she looks at the kissing moon too, that's the same thing. It's right. like a, a feeling of like she knows the one spirit that's coming and it's death. And like, she's like, I, I enjoy this. This is great. You know, the kissing moon. And she like kisses the cat and his yeah. little eyes and is like, yeah. And then, um, I, I know I'm moving a little bit ahead, but even so when Susan shows up and like looks in the window, like her first thought is like a young girl with the rose, you know, the rosy red on her face. Yeah. And like, she learned all the wrong lessons yeah. and like chased the wrong things mm-hmm. and got the wrong ideas out of everything and, and went the wrong way. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, Oh, you're painting your, painting your picture of like the Judas, the evil gal. I don't know. Yeah, definitely. I mean, and that's a great scene. We'll get to it, but that's also a great season scene for Susan. Cause I feel like you learn a lot about Susan in that moment too. And like, her ability to kind of like really quickly read people is very impressive. The other thing that this does really well, the world building that is delivered through this, because we're just dropped in this world right away, though, we get the sense that it's like very agrarian. We learn little details like how they refer to seasons as full earth and white earth and reaping. It tells us that there is a very clear cultural and set of rituals in this town. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't need all the minutiae, but we get enough broad strokes that you really feel like you can kind of know yourself, know where you are, which is good because it's very unlike the vibe of most of Midworld that we've seen up until this point. Whether, you know, because like, in the past it's always been post-apocalyptic or medieval court. And you kind of got a hint of it in River Crossing. Like you can see how a place like this could become River Crossing, but this is the first time that we've been in a world like this before it is like fully moved on. So mm-hmm. it's important to kind of understand the culture and the vibe of the place. And I think you definitely do. But at the same time, you can see the seeds already of a world moving on. There's creeping corruption already that even in just these first two sections right away where whether it's the brewing politics with the big coffin hunters and thorin and farson or it's ria's mutant cat or her references (laughs) to strange bent seed you know there's all this stuff that tells you even though they haven't gone full post-apocalyptic we're like on the cusp the part that's confusing though and i want to bring this up just to see what your take is on it like this is supposed to be Roland sitting down and telling the story. Yeah. But how does Roland know all this stuff so detailedly? Because, like, he's not there. Yeah. I I mean, some of this is, like, I think narrator prerogative. But Okay. It's just uh, when, I was, when I was going through this section, I'm you like, well. Like, how does she know about the tingle in her? Exactly. Exactly. Like, that's way too region. deep of a description. Literally. <laughs> roll in to be like oh yeah i just sensed that at one moment she was tingling while i was yeah horseback riding, i mean you know? i think you gotta kind of just like 
narrator's prerogative kind of thing. Yeah, fair enough. Um, and then the other thing we need to talk about before, I know we need to move on. This is actually the section I have the most thoughts on, so don't worry, I'm not going to be no, doing okay, this okay. in depth with everything. But the other thing I think is really important in this section is that we get the introduction of this mysterious glass ball. Clearly has powers of seduction to the point where... And rose-colored light. That uh, is where I was going to ask. I wanted to kind of go there with you. Like, what do you think the significance of rose-colored... I mean, I know what I when you hear, like, rose-colored glasses, what that means. And I wonder if you think significance of it is here. Well, I suppose, like, you're drawing a, a line again underneath the rose. But, like, the rose-colored glasses, as you alluded to, is, like seeing things from a different perspective in like Through the a best positive light. Manner. Yeah. Right. Yeah, exactly. And to like, the point where it may not even be accurate. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And that's reflected it itself on Rhea when like Susan sees her through the window yeah. and she looks like a younger version of herself. Yeah. And so, I, I mean, to me, that was like Stephen King underlining it three times. You yeah. Know? <laughs> it's like, yeah, rose-colored glasses. Right. Didn't get it. Now you better get it because I just showed you. Ha ha. You know, like that sort of thing. Yeah. So I agree one hundred percent with you. And then like, it also sort of like drawing her in at the same time. Yes. This is a a prop that's used in a mini, uh, basically like witch and wizard plots. Mm-hmm. But like, it's I'm gonna point to Harry Potter because that's what I remember first. Okay. It's like the mirror where you look into the mirror mm, and it shows you, and what you, you want. don't. Yeah. Exactly. You don't just see yourself. You see like the thing that you want and then the mirror traps you that way by like keeping you in front of it all the time because you want to look at the thing that yeah. like checks that box. Yeah, it's you. like a mix between that and like Sauron's eye or whatever. Yep, exactly. I'm very intrigued by it, right? Because in addition to it being literally seductive and like giving her like the sexy feels, it seems to also be sort of psychologically seductive it's definitely mm-hmm. right away she is she seems completely obsessed and possessive of it as soon as they bring it to her she's almost like uh she's onto its power like immediately right and she's already like analyzing every boy that has touched it and like how she's gonna manipulate them so that this doesn't cause her trouble when she like opens it up right exactly and, and going deep on it too like uh, uh, you know, I can manipulate this lock and put it back together again. And like, I can make this so that no one knows that I used it. Mm-hmm. And even though and this belongs like, to so-and-so. Like biting yep. her tongue and not necessarily doing the things that she wants to do because she wants to make sure that it doesn't get taken away from her. Mm-hmm. And she doesn't want her cat. She's jealous of her cat looking at it. If that doesn't, <laughs> that is like big Gollum energy. You know, I know that the Lord of the Rings is a huge influence on Stephen King. He wanted to write his own lord of the rings opus and this is oh you can feel this is my precious yeah this is my precious for sure for (laughs) sure it's very clear that there is that this thing is alive right like it has a heartbeat essentially and it appears to have a bit of a prerogative which is interesting when we get into the next section how it opens itself yeah it shows her what it wants to show her first she didn't ask a question she has to like she like yeah exactly like it it it, it's not like she was like, hey, show me this. It just, like, immediately went to to the the gang on the horses and, like... Yeah. Like, you think it's you a go. tool, but it's actually leading the witness a bit, you know? You think, oh, I can use this potentially for, like, to see the things I want to see. But if it's choosing what it's showing you, then it has its own agenda, which is oh, really man. interesting. I- There's one other little fun moment in here where when she's looking into the orb and she sees who appears... Someone who appears to be Roland. It's Roland. It's got to be Roland. And she's 
she can't see who he is because he's got his hat pulled down over his eyes. She mm-hmm. she says, I can't see your God pounding eyes. And I was like, <gasps> territory swear. Because <laughs> like God pounded is like the swear word in that. And there's another thing that's coming up later. We'll come back to it. That makes me think that maybe our little Rhea is a bit of a multiverse tourist. Oh, you think so? I, th- I mean, she's using territory's language, which is interesting. Mm. And then there's an item in her house that doesn't appear to be of the, the mage's area. Really? I, I didn't pick that All up. Right, we'll You'll get have to, to, we'll en- get to enlighten it. me. So the last thing I want to cover when we're talking about uh, Rhea's portion of this is like Stephen King um, goes out of his way to also describe like uh, the smell of the place. Oof. And he does this by uh, first when she cre- uh, crouches down to, to grab the orb from the hiding place. She like when she's standing back up, she like grunts and then stephen king basically writes like her nether regions grunt and it's like she's just like farting when she's standing up and then like as she's experiencing this orb not only does her nether regions tingle but like it almost allows her to step away from the olfactory senses that she's normally surrounded by that have like given her blindness to the smells of her place yeah and for a moment like she realizes that her place is rank and <laughs> she is unshowered and it is gross and there's probably a bedpan somewhere and i'm adding that for no reason but like it's, <laughs> it just <laughs> smells something something awful something and like everything from her armpits to you know everything yeah. like it's just whew. and and <sighs> that is that is a strange thing and like a, an interesting thing for Stephen King to go out of his way to do. Yeah, and, he really does not want us to like Rhea. <laughs> it's yeah, the vibe exactly. I get. Like, I don't think he wants us to feel ambivalent about her at all. In some respects, you could almost feel bad for her, but she's just such a hateful little turd that you can't help yourself, <laughs> but just despise her on sight. And I think, yeah, I mean, that is intended so moving on basically now we cut over to a girl galloping and kind of running in this full moon singing my careless love yeah and this is suzanne and she is is basically on her way to ria's house is sent there by her aunt and the uh wishes of thorin the mayor of the city Uh, to go there and get proofed and she doesn't really know what that means but she's scared and nervous about the situation and like the full moon is sort of taking her heart and she's run and jogged and and kind of like hurried there faster than she probably should have and and this leads her to see Rhea like running around fast Mm -hmm. and it's fun because Susan kind of like internally is like, well, if you see an elderly lady running around fast, it means that she doesn't want, you know, anybody else to see what she's up to. Yeah. So I better keep singing so that I don't inadvertently alert her to the fact that I saw her doing the thing. And this comes up multiple times where Susan, like, catches herself and immediately reinterprets the situation Mm -hmm. and then, like, slips in a smart aside that makes it seem like that was a legitimate thing that was nothing to worry about at all. Yeah. And that's just, it's interesting. And like, that goes along hand in hand with your statement that she's, she can read people fairly well. Mm -hmm. 
but she basically like sneaks up on the cabin. Rhea's running around really fast, and she hey, gets up. I'm to... imagining her Rhea just like running in circles all over the place. I, yeah, it was like this like cat that has two legs sticking out of its sides, just like <laughs> falling at her as fast as it can. And, and so she like notices what she's up to. And then, like, gets in there, meets her, and they immediately do not hit it off. No, no, like, no, 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 no. The opposite of hit it off, like, Rhea tries to, like, jab at her by uh, mentioning that her father has been dead for five years and was trampled by horses. Mm-hmm. And uh, Susan, like, has to bite back the anger of someone mentioning her father, calms it down a notch to where she just says that, you know, her father is not something that she needs to talk about. And, like, the two women are at odds to the point where, like, Susan has to ask, like, hey, wait a minute, um, can we start over? Right. And, like, Rhea's like, there ain't no starting over, girl. But but we can keep going. And so that leads to, like, you know, an extra painful confrontation between them. Rhea sends her out to get firewood. And while she's out getting firewood, she notices the rose or, and correct me if I'm getting this in the wrong order. Cause this is something she I notices probably... the little window and she can't like yep. resist the urge to peek. Exactly. And so she bends down on her knees and like looks out into the window. Then she brings and she sees the rose rose light. And like already she's probably seen too much. And Rhea's looking at this, this ball one more time. And like, this is where all the thoughts of her being, um, uh, looking young and making all the wrong choices and so on are are spelled out by susan looking at her in the window and like this is not something that susan's meant to know about or to see and like she doesn't realize that she's got like a pretty decent sort of damocles over her head yeah to, to know this like she could could get the get the witch this way but instead like when she brings the firewood back in there's like a little weird aside about like uh, Rhea just carelessly tossing the wood on the fire and like messing it up mm-hmm. and and then like Rhea just like kind of uses her witch powers to like light it back up again mm-hmm. and then you know you brought something for me she pulls out two pieces of gold uh Rhea you know does this old timey like I'm gonna bite this with my teeth to see that it's real we get this sort of like weird world building again where there's an insight into the coins themselves and how they're like not well made right. and poorly figured and that that's a sign of the area and the times and then Rhea kind of mentions the importance of her stamp um it's it's all kind of building up to this point where Rhea actually proofs susan yeah and, and by proving it's it's basically this this bit where uh she ch- uh, she makes susan strip down to to nothing and like susan's kind of like a little bit bashful about this and then Rhea like basically touches all her bits and like looks around and then strangely is like i didn't teach your aunt to masturbate but i taught you <laughs> you know like what? yeah that's a real s- strange one and and all of this time while she's like kind of back and forth with susan like she's also kind of filling susan in on this bargain that she's made because we find out that basically susan uh via her aunt was convinced to um lay with mayor horton or, or thornton excuse me mm-hmm. um and thorin his wife like the excuse is that his wife is you know dry or barren can't have kids or, or whatever right. and like she's supposed to be there as a surrogate to have have a boy for the family mm-hmm. but ria's like nah she, she she just wants something that doesn't squish when he he uh, uh. grabs it 
and like a box that's that squeezes oh, when he pushes God. and he's just like Ooh. Yeah. Ooh. It's graphic. Ooh. It's graphic. <laughs> yeah, and I'm not gonna go deep into the the inspection portion yeah. of this. I mean but sadly like, it's a thing. It's a thing. Yep, Chep checks checks all the bits and bobs and like <sighs> I think that there was a time in the world when this sort of thing actually yeah, it's did still happen happen on a regular basis. It's still it still a hundred percent. It still happens. It happens in all all over the world. Just last year, that uh, there's a rapper named Ti. I'm sure you've heard of him. Was like yes. t- bragging about how he has his daughter's virginity checked by her doctor every year. What? Yeah, and he got a lot of backlash about it because that's fucking gross, man. Yeah, that's not, and that's not something that you should be doing in a modern society. Well, yeah. Anyway, pretty monstrous. <laughs> but I mean, here's the thing: if you want to set us up to hate Rhea, this is a pretty effective way to do it. If you want to like understand exactly what the culture is like to some degree in Magus, now you know. You know, like it, it paints a very uh, clear picture of the gender dynamics in that town mm-hmm. for sure. And, and basically, we find out that um, Susan's aunt. Uh, sort of like not tricked her, but like yeah. sold her, manipulated some magic her. beans, yep. yeah, yeah, with the like the hopes of a child, and like, oh, you know, you only have to sleep with someone once, but our family will own our land now permanently, and like, yeah. you could have three horses just like your father yeah. had horses. She and... essentially trafficked her niece. <laughs> yes, exactly, <laughs> and like, it's also like a little bit weird because the dynamic with her father sort of set her up for this like. Well, if it's it's almost like that um, Back to the Future thing where it's like, don't call me chicken. Yeah. Like, as soon as you mention her father, like, she's like, no, I can do this. Right, right. And, like, pick, makes, makes poor choices because of that. Yeah, we haven't met the aunt. I feel like I know the aunt. Again, it's yeah. very efficient storytelling in this. Well, section. and Rhea, like, like, has disdain for her aunt and actually, like, you know... Um, makes fun of her chest size and yeah. like tells her that like she liked her so there little that she not didn't a person teach her on to the take planet. care of herself. Rhea doesn't have something super fucking nasty to say about. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, but basically like, so after she's proof, like uh, the last bit we get is that Susan is like um, done with all this, these checks and like Rhea is looking at her and pulls out a silver coin and basically hypnotizes her mm-hmm. and then starts running her hands through her hair. And like, this is the weird part is this is after she just got done describing what Thorin would like to do with her hair while he plows his fingers into her hair. He will plow down below as yeah. well. And like, you're like, well, Rhea, like kind of just got a kick out of like touching this girl inappropriately and uh, then, like yeah. now she's running her hair her hands through her hair mm-hmm. as well like is she almost like just as i mean she is basically like this is thorin in, in pretext to actual thorin yeah right well yeah i mean she like non-consensually penetrated yeah her. exactly <laughs> and like and like ria's like happy about it like she's like having a good time she's actually when like uh susanna actually or susan actually like gets a little bit of nerve while this is going on and is like no and like ria's uh completely offended that yeah. she was rejected by this girl and told to like stand back and that's the other thing that's really important to note is that susan actually used thorin as a protectorate for the first time right where like she's like you know um i could tell him 
that this didn't go well and then you, you you know you'd be in trouble and like Rhea gets like overly uh complimentary mm-hmm. and like weird about it in this like um almost like a the dark crystal that one like a skex Weasley. she's like a skexies so. yeah she's like, she's like oh you're beautiful yeah you know, it's like weird yeah she's got a very skexies vibe to her mm-hmm and so I've rolled through that pretty fast. Yeah. And I know you have a oh, lot yeah. of stuff to say. So, and honestly, I did not catch the description of the um, item that you were speaking of, but there is one other thing I wanted to mention. And this is another word that I didn't recognize. And when she's running up to the cabin mm-hmm. and sort of dancing and skipping the moonlight, she says there's a term she uses like mir- mir- mirage. Is that right? She sang because it kept the megrams away. Is that the word you were yeah, looking at? Yes, megrams. And wh- I what feel is like that? I've heard that. I think it's like the heebie-jeebies. Or like butterflies in your stomach or something like yeah, that? Yeah, but especially being kind of like creeped out, I think. Okay. A megram is... Okay, actually, I was wrong. Okay, it is depression or low spirits. Oh, so like so it's, it's to like lift... She was singing to keep her mood up, essentially. Okay, so is it like a... Is this, this like copacetic? Uh, I mean, like you could feel copacetic, like you feel. No, but I mean, like, is it like megrams is like of that generation of words? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, because I mean, it almost sounds like like um, you you definitely have gotten rid of the megrams if you're feeling copacetic. Uh, oh, fiddlesticks! I mean, it definitely has an old timiness to it, but I feel like that is in keeping with the language that King uses when he's mid world talking. So let's go back a bit because I have a I have a lot to say about Susan. Not quite as much as I did <laughs> at the beginning, but I do have some thoughts about Susan. So going back to when she first actually arrives, when we get our first perspective of her, because the first part of the the first sections are from Rhea's perspective, and then we switch over to Susan's. And right away, we learn quite a bit about Susan. The very first thing that she says is her is correctly deducing the fact that Rhea is trying to hide something, right? And so right away, we know that she is clever. She is insightful. She's quick-witted. You would think we're about to meet this beautiful, blonde-haired 16-year-old you're not expecting depth, right? And I think that's true as a reader, and it's also true of Rhea, which we'll get to. Then we get take a step back, and we hear about her journey on, to the hut. And we find out that in addition to her cleverness, she's also kind of impulsive. Whimsical, basically. Whimsical, yes. I mean, like, she's someone who, like, she talks about, she follows her heart, right? So whether it's running or it's singing, like, there is a like a useful exuberance to her and an impulsiveness to her that is totally understandable in someone who is 16. What I think makes her even more interesting is that she also is very clever. And I felt like right away, I knew who she was. I know this girl. I like this girl. And whereas I found Rhea so detestable at first glance, right away, I was like on side with Susan because she seems like a more complex and interesting character than you would think at first at first glance. But like she's had like she's had her father die. She has a manipulative aunt. She knows like the structure of the town and like the weird things that are going on, like has a sense for what's ahead of her and that's more insightful than you expect from a lot of 16 year olds not all 16 year olds don't get me wrong but like that's that's a lot more dimensions than you would expect yes so 
and I think that that plays in that expectation plays into what happens with her and Rhea, right? Because like right away, mm -hmm. the first opportunity she gets, Rhea is cruel to her. Like before she's even like set, they've set eyes on each other officially. Rhea, like she hears Rhea insulting her, right? And she's even like insightful enough to know like that if I let her dig in yes. and she senses it, that she will use that and dig in deeper, and that I need to stop it right now by not letting the tears come out that are hiding behind my eyes when she mentions this of my father right and it's exactly this that allows or that Rhea basically underestimates her and so mm -hmm. when susan is smarter and more and and able to kind of like recognize her intentions and her motives it like it basically puts Rhea on her back foot right away and causes her to drop her facade a little bit even more and you see this mix within Rhea that is both like this nasty cruel bitterness but also this kind of petulant angry child sort of victim. attitude oh. she's kind of a victim you know like and and I was just kind of like oops potential weakness exposed here right well it even starts a little earlier because she starts off on the wrong foot by being upset that anyone would dare to show up early for her place and like she actually was sort of almost fucking with susan to yeah. like have her come late because she wanted a break between her appointments right and now her appointments were back to back right. and she didn't get a mess around with the thing right and some of the petulance actually almost feels like it comes from the like want of yes. the crystal oh probably that's probably very true i mean she's definitely very salty about it for sure mm -hmm. um and there's another moment i really liked that i felt like again in the case where we have Rhea enjoying the sound of the finny, there's these little details that kind of tells you a little bit more about the character. There's a moment where Musty the cat hisses at Susan and she hisses back. And I was like, ooh. <laughs> it's a very subtle but, again, efficient bit of characterization that I that I caught and appreciated. Well, and the cat almost, like, reflects Rhea in a way because, like, as she's trying to bring in the firewood. And, and Susan's even a little bit petulant about bringing in the firewood. Yeah. It's like, you make every person that shows up to your And gives cabin, you gold, yeah. <laughs> gives you gold, bring bring you firewood. And the cat's, like, trying to trip her up. Yeah. And, like, Rhea's kind of like, yeah, go cat, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think she wanted to humiliate Susan because she was humiliated by the fact that Susan kind of, like, checked her um, in an mm -hmm. unexpected way, for sure. Susan's reaction to the rosy light, I think, is very telling. When she sees the rosy light, it it makes her kind of like she, there's something about it she distrusts. There's something about it she doesn't like, and I feel like that tells you a little bit about her instincts. And it's just an interesting little moment, right? Where Rhea, on the other hand, is seduced and aroused. Susan is off put and suspicious. So I think that tells you a little bit about her as well. Well, I mean, that's the, like, analog drawn between Rhea and, like, the Thinny and Rhea. Yeah. And the Reaping Moon and, like... Yeah, exactly. Pretty much Rhea and everybody else. Yeah. There is one really kind of potentially, well, pretty heartbreaking moment during the proving where Susan oh. is kind of, like, self-talk. I mean, there's a lot of problems. and I mean, upsetting things in that section. But there's a moment where Susan is, like, thinking about these horses and how they believe themselves to be free oh, in their minds. Yes. Yeah. And I thought it was pretty heartbreaking because like, it's both very illustrative of the situation that she's in right now, because like, she's basically been sold off and she is not like her own keeper at this moment, but she's holding on to this freedom inside. And also like, I'm worried about <laughs> maybe a larger story potential. I don't really know. I don't really know, but it felt, it felt profound in a way that I was like, Susan, Susan, so, okay, now we got to the part where there's another object that I think is interesting, 
which is okay. when she goes to write the the note about being proved honest, she gets mm-hmm. a pad that says sit go on the outside. Okay. I took that to mean that so maybe I'm too elaborate here, but I still imagine Roland's world is like a place that had I don't know, like big refineries and things like that laying around all over the place. Well, I mean, he talks about how rare paper is. Oh, yeah. But, so there, then are you implying that maybe she like walked the the, the path? I'm and, wondering like, if maybe she stole been... someone's notebook or something. I mean, I think either she's been going through with any or things are falling through the world to her because Sitco is something that we see in Kansas. Mm-hmm. So it's definitely something from a different part of the multiverse. Hmm. So I don't know. I don't know. Well, just a little detail. I mean, okay. So then it, that's actually a g- good question. So then could it mean that the gang is on one side of the thinny and on the other side is Rhea and Su- Susan's adventure simultaneously? I don't know about that, but I mean, at some point our, <laughs> I mean, at some point our characters have got to get back to our world. Are they going to get dropped down in Magus is the question. So I don't know. I don't remember. So I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I've, I'd completely forgotten the crystal ball business. Yeah. I, I mean, I remembered Rhea. You don't like, remember the grapefruit? No, <laughs> uh, I, I, um, my, my biggest memory of this section was like a, an elderly lady farting. <laughs> <laughs> and like the, um, the gasp of like the use of the word anus. <laughs> And it's just like those are the two things I remembered. Like I was like, "Gross old lady and anus." Got it. Every time Done. you say that, I think about that Bob's Burgers episode where the ant paints all the animal anuses. <laughs> anuses, anuses. It's all just close up. Like I just love stars. the dream when there's like all the dancing anuses. Okay, so last thing at the end, I don't really have a ton to say about, it, but I am very. I have a bad feeling about Reap Night, <laughs> based on all the stuff, like how he's going to have to wait for reef night. And he, she whispers something in her ear about like what she's going to do after they, they go to pound town. So <laughs> I just have a bad feeling about reef night. Well, and like that, the last request, like um, uh, of Rhea, basically like delaying the night at which they sleep together is like almost a reprieve for Susan, but not quite because like yeah. she realizes that she will still have to do the deed. Yeah. And the information that uh, Rhea has given her is like almost opened up her eyes to the treachery of her aunt yeah. and like what is actually ahead of her. I just think it's also a moment where you just realize how young she is to her. Three months seems like an eternity. Mm-hmm. Remember when you're a kid and summer felt like it lasted forever. And now it's like a minute yeah. and you're like, where'd that go? And I would take that minute. Oh God, I need a summer so bad. <laughs> so yeah. All right. Overall, what'd you think of the chapter? Oh, it was good. I, I actually am with you in the fact that like this goes deep without going deep mm-hmm. and gives you a lot of information and, you know, introduces you to the characters in a way that also world builds greatly. Yeah. It went fast, it went smooth, and, like, there's a lot of nuance in it mm-hmm. that I probably did not spend enough time on, and thankfully you did. And there's probably even more stuff in here to right. talk about if you really wanted yeah. to dig deep. I mean, just in, like, the phallic symbols and the, like, yeah. multiple descriptions of men and their penises and, like, the seed and all these other yeah. things. It's, like, it really goes deep into, like, how the mutations and things have, like, settled in on the world. And yet we're presented with a world that almost sort of feels like it's Western and not that dystopian yeah. at the exact same time. Yeah. 
and that's a really cool, weird future past thing to be in yeah. that I enjoy a lot. Yeah. What about you, Rachel? Yeah. I mean, I'm continuing to really enjoy this book. Parts of this were definitely a rough go, just because I was just like, <laughs> oh, gross. Anus. <laughs> but overall, I, I thought the introduction of Rhea as a villain. I mean, we talked a little bit about how we were kind of underwhelmed by Blaine in the end. Uh, I think Rhea is another top tier villain potential. She Mm -hmm. is really creepy. Susan is really likable. I'm ready to just kind of immerse myself in this, this new world that we're in overall. Yeah, I'm in, I liked it. I enjoyed it quite a bit despite some of the content, which was a bummer and I'm excited. I'm excited for whatever is going to come next. I'm excited to get to know more of these big coffin hunters because they also seem like they have big, good, big, bad potential. I mean, I have a feeling that you're going to get introduced to everybody and then it's going to go sideways because it's a rolling story. (laughs) Probably. (laughs) All right. So for those of you at home who are reading along for the next episode, we are going to be covering Wizard and Glass Part 2 to Susan Chapter 3, A Meeting on the Road. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. I mean, that one kind of like underlines what's going to happen next. Yeah, I'm guessing we're going to meet somebody on the road. The question is, who are we going to meet? That's the question. Because it could be the three writers in the the Crystal Orb. It could be the Big Coffin Hunters. It could be Thorin and his big purple dick. You don't know! You don't know. (laughs) Hopefully it's not the latter. All right, so connections to the Stephen King universe. We do have a little one this time. So... We were introduced briefly to the big coffin hunters in this episode. And a small connection is that there is a book called The Regulators by Richard Bachman. Have you read this? I have not read The Regulators, okay. but I am familiar with the works. Okay, cool. So it is the twinner book of Desperation. Did you ever read Desperation? <laughs> I'm familiar with it, but I have not okay, read it. Okay, fair. That's a good one. I would recommend Desperation. And the... The regulators are kind of like the chief antagonist in the regulators, obviously. And we learn in that book that they are also sometimes called the coffin, big coffin hunters. And they are described in the book as being a band of killers who are part cowboy and part motocops cartoon characters. So I don't, this is one of those things where I don't know if it is so much a connection as like an homage, but they are definitely to some degree interchangeable here, um, at least in Twitter town, except for the, like the big coffin hunters through like nine degrees of separation are basically agents of the Crimson King. Whereas the regulators are agents of this extra dimensional creature called talk, who is the chief antagonist in that and desperation. Like I thought maybe it was like, kind of like a, a man in black, another name for the Crimson King. Okay. But they are from what I can tell separate entities that are both like agents of the dark chaos side but not necessarily the same character. It's a loose connection, but it is a connection. So there you go. All right. Stephen King movie adaptation news. Now there's no like movement, but there is a story that you actually put on the Facebook today that I thought was interesting and worth mentioning. Do you want? I almost never post anything. Either. I know it was. I The thing is, I was heading to the Facebook to post that story and it was there. I was like, all right, DJ. You did that shit. <laughs> yes. Trolling you. You beat me. I was very impressed. I'm not going to lie. Do you remember what it was about or do you want me to break down the story? Uh, well, it was a director that we're familiar with doing other good things, basically saying like he would love to shepherd the Dark Tower into a series and like be in charge of that. And that would be a dream thing for him. And like, I forget what movies he's okay. done off the top of my head, but 
um i know they have been good yes <laughs> and like um when i read it i was like "Ooh, he did that i'm like you could do the dark towers no problem right okay so the director you're talking about is mike flanagan Thank and you. the things that he's previously directed that are it specifically Stephen King are Gerald's Game and Doctor Sleep, and he is working on an adaptation of Revival. But he also is the director of Haunting of Hill House, was his that Netflix series was Mike Flanagan. Yep. Oculus was Mike Flanagan. Basically, everything he's directed has been really good to excellent. The two that come to mind for me are his Ouija board yes. adaptation, which was way better than it had any business being exactly like it wasn't amazing but it's a, it's a story based on a hasbro product yes. so like if it's even watchable you've done a successful job mm-hmm. and then the the other one i was thinking of is before i wake yes. which is like a pretty dark and interesting yeah so and i haven't even watched dr sleep so yeah it's know. really good he makes excellent horror and he's clearly a su- stephen king super fan so he was recently doing press at the fantasia best because Bly Manor is coming out on Netflix next month I believe and that's the okay. sequel to The Haunting of Hill House which was like a huge deal last year I don't know if you if you watched any of that on Netflix nope okay well you should it's pretty great I would recommend it <laughs> there's too much television I know he also Gerald's Games on Netflix which he directed which is also great but anyway so they were talking to him about things he wanted to do they were asking about revival and where that's at right now they were talking about he was working on a, a shining prequel that's kind of died because unfortunately Dr. Sleep did not do that great in the box office despite having really good critical reviews I think people just don't get it but anyway he they asked him basically what he would like to do and his dream project would be to finally adapt the dark tower and it's one of those things where you hear the right project and the right director and you're like put those things together people he's becoming sort of the premier stephen king adapter maybe it could happen i don't know what do you it sounds like you're pretty into it yeah i mean like anybody so when they handed the original Dark Towers off to, like, a high-budget, high-concept cast and, like, put a bunch of fingers in the pot. Yeah. As soon as you do that, the studios sort of, like, grab the script yeah. and are like, let's A-B this until we get to where we think we can sell the most tickets and, like, make it the most easily digestible for the most number yeah. of people. Well that's fine but that does not necessarily like keep you true it doesn't work for something this complex exactly it's not not meant for like something that has a lot of origins and like is deep and rich and like when you look at a smiling happy guy like this and like see some of his other work you're like even if you don't give this guy all the dollars he is gonna try his damnedest to like get everything that anybody else would want out of this because it's not something that he's doing for money as much as he's doing for passion and love of the the property he made gerald's game haunting of hill house he's working on midnight mass for netflix so clearly he has an ongoing relationship with netflix and i could see because he's had such success there that might be a good place for him to adapt it because it would give him the freedom to make this the hard r it needs to be but also Mm. maybe there's a pre-existing relationship there that would like allow him to have the kind of creative freedom that would not have all the meddling that you're just talking about that might be the perfect director perfect project perfect platform i would be super into that (laughs) And I don't know if this is just because of like Dr. Sleep, but I, when I went searching for more on him, I found a ton of pictures of him just like hanging out next to Stephen King. Yeah. Well, I mean, this is adapting all of his work. Like obviously Stephen King likes what he's doing. Right. 
Hmm. So that's good. Yeah. I mean, it's nice to have good uh, news on this front. I mean, it's not real news, but any news something. is something. And like that it's not something terrible is kind of a relief. <laughs> Sorry. I'm like in deep mourning over what's happening at Netflix with the last Avatar adaptation. So, so this is. Uh, I don't even know the story, but I know Netflix has like already gone through and like, oh, you've all reached season three cancel oh i know i know i'm salty about that and too. it's like well why it's like oh because um people are are more happy to buzz about the newest thing and like by season the thing three is, they've though, gotten is used netflix to it at some like, point is just going to be a graveyard of half-made shows well and then like what are they going to do come back and be like now it's time to mine our old properties yeah jesus christ all right well let's let's uh that's that's it for news <laughs> let's end this on a fun note with some listener um input from our facebook group so this time i asked the group obviously we need to cast ria of the coos like it's a must do so i wanted to know who they would like to see play that character in the movie but i also just for fun asked what they think ria whispered in susan's ear wrong answers only so this is not spoiler town this is just for fun wrong answers only and we got some really fun answers i mean it would be really funny if like it Rhea, like leans in close give him a hug carl <laughs> <laughs> oh my god okay well i think you just won the conversation let's see here <laughs> Uh, our first answer was from Jay, who said that in Susan's ear, Rhea whispered, Hail Hydra, which I thought was pretty, <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty good, right? <laughs> Tim weighed in, and he said for casting, he would like to see, because I loved and hated her in The Mist, Marsha Gay Harden as, did you see The Mist? Yeah, I I am a purveyor of the black and white. Right, the mist. that's right. We've talked about this. So the like crazy religious lady in the. Yeah, I can I see, see that. that. So ditto Jennifer Jason Lee, who embodied pure evil in the hateful eighth eight eighth <laughs> in the hateful eight, and even what I imagine is a very Rhea esque voice in that film. She also shown in another King adaptation, Dolores Claiborne. I love that movie. If neither of them are available, Patricia Clarkson or Sissy Spacek, because they their resumes speak for themselves. All right. Those mm, all seem like Sissy decent choices. At least Jennifer okay. Jason Lee might be a little too young, but I guess you could just like make up her up, right? Yeah, that's true. And then she whispered one of the following. Chicken to Chinese. China, the Chinese chicken. <laughs> okay. <laughs> we don't make mistakes. We just have happy accidents. <laughs> the robot from Rocky Four says hello which I'm thinking is a Wolves of Color reference. And right. this book is stupid long. Am I right? <laughs> <laughs> Craig says, Betty fucking white. <laughs> Fair, enough. Fair enough. Let's see here. He said, Mike drops, leaves, leaves, leaves. Thread. Leaves the thread. Yeah. Uh, okay. Craig said, oh, he comes back. But seriously, Betty white, I think it would be sinister and jarring to to hear her say some of the stuff that Rhea says. If not her, maybe Kathy Bates bringing some of that misery craziness back or Shirley Moon Zombie from The Devil's Rejects. So Kathy Bates, like, I I imagine Rhea is like a spindly, skinny, um, like, skin hanging off of her mm -hmm, character. Mm -hmm. Kathy, Kathy Bates is a little more like huggable grandma that's evil. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I see what you mean. And so I don't know... Uh, I'm a little skeptical of that one. I mean, don't get me wrong. Like, Kathy Bates could play all kinds of things because right. she's awesome. Right. But, like, does she seem that type of evil? I don't know. Fair. Fair enough. It looks like 
Tim actually agrees with you because he thinks Kathy Bates would have made a great Sylvia Pitson. Yeah, there you go. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yep. All right. So Clarissa chimes in and she actually thinks Kathy Bates would be a, is a wonderful actress. And she definitely whispered to Susan, Hey, little mama, let me whisper in your ear and tell you something that you might like to hear. (laughs) (laughs) All right. And finally, Chris says, okay, I have two choices. First choice is Angela Bassett. Her work in American Horror Story showed a pretty good range of evil with her as Marie Laveau, especially reminding me of the petty revenge-minded Rhea of Kuth. If not her, Helena Bonham Carter, who always does a wonderful job as a creepy, creepy, witchy character. And what does she whisper? I channels her inner drumph, uh, whispers to her a little locker room talk. Oh, no. Grab him by the pussy. Oh, no. No, no. All right. Well, so who would you pick? Um, so mine's a non-traditional again, okay. but like in the uh, underlining of your uh, makeup could go a long yeah. ways. Uh, uh, Terry Jones, um, he often did an amazing, gross old lady in Monty Python oh, throughout the series. Okay, and like his voice is gross. His face is gross. Would like add to the <laughs> the like grossness that is uh Rhea okay. in general yeah 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 and so like i just oh yeah, yeah okay yeah i can see that right yeah, yeah yeah all right mine is a little more straightforward i just picked cloris leachman because i could picture her saying all the dirty shit <laughs> <laughs> thank you everyone for contributing i always love to hear what you guys come up with you have great ideas you crack me up it's always so much fun to hear from you on the facebook group and if you're not already on the facebook group listener you should come join us because it's fun If you want to get in touch with us, there are lots of ways to do it. Like I said, Facebook group. But also, you can email us at thecastofcaw at zombiegirls.com. That's not a lot of ways. That's two ways. But that's okay. (laughs) And if you're enjoying the show, leave us a review on iTunes. DJ, they haven't had enough of you already. Where can they find you on the internet? As usual, you can swing over to deadlander.com and you can check out and pre-order our new feature-length film as well as check out new episodes of The Splattercast. The, I don't know if we get a claim, internet's longest-running horror-themed podcast because we took a two-year hiatus. (laughs) Counts anymore. (laughs) But uh, I'm going to claim that title regardless. And also, guys, if you want more of me in your life, you can go watch the last 15 years of YouTube that I've posted over the years. Uh, There's over 700, I believe, videos of me from young DJ to current DJ uh, talking on the internet. So there you have it. And as always, folks, thanks for listening to the Casticom. Bye, everybody! (laughs) Bye!